Friends, there's an outline there. Hopefully that will help as we make our way through. Love and the desire to be loved are basic to human existence. Love is what makes us human. Love is what makes us different from all the other animals. Victor Hugo, the writer, once said that the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. And we know that because that's why our lives are driven so much by love. We seek out love in so many of our pursuits. It drives and dictates the things we say and don't say. There's things that we say because we want to be loved and there's things we don't say because we want to be loved. It drives the choices we make. It drives what we choose to reveal about ourselves. We don't want to reveal so often who we actually are because we fear what? We fear that people won't love us. In a concert a few years ago, Madonna I think she might be getting old. She, she forgot some of, her fa- some of her, uh, the lyrics from her own song. There she was performing, there's massive thousands of people there, and she, and she forgot, she just couldn't remember the words of the song. And, and so she came and she just sat down in front of the audience and she said to them, I'm feeling down tonight. Do you love me? Of course, the audience... Uh, with an uproar of, yes, we love you. And perhaps, you know, perhaps Madonna was just fishing, you know, having an off night, she was just fishing for a compliment. Not hard in that kind of context, but maybe. Maybe for one of the world's most iconic singers, to be loved was, was more important to her than to, be admi- than to be admired. See, our desire to be loved drives drives our lives, drives so many things in life. And in our passage tonight, this isn't lost on the Apostle John. The Apostle John who wrote this section, he, he thinks that love is pretty important. I don't know if you picked up on, um, in the second reading that Sienna read, how many times the word love occurs there. Um, it's fascinating because it, it occurs... 28 times. The word love or its derivative occurs 28 times in that passage. Interestingly, perhaps to some, does anyone know the the gospel with the highest reference to love out of the four gospels? Does anyone want to have a guess which gospel has the highest number of references to the word love? John. Yes, so John's gospel. The same guy who wrote this letter wrote the gospel of John. And does anyone... No, just off the top of their head, how many references there are? You don't. So I'll tell you. In the Gospel of John, there's 30 references to love in the whole entire Gospel. But here, just in this small section that was read to us, there are 28 references to love. Love is important in John's mind. And so what we're going to do is approach this in three ways. You'll see there on your outline, we're going to consider first what the source of love is. Secondly, we're going to think about what the expression of love is. And thirdly, we're going to think about the consequence if we've got time. We're in a period of water restrictions. Uh, We know this because even before the restrictions came into enforcement, someone uh, phoned our church to say, you've got the sprinkler on. Now, it wasn't in 
uh, restriction period, but they just wanted to let us know that the sprinkler was on and the restrictions are going to kick in in a couple of weeks. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly concerned about the level of the, the level of water in the dams. It's under 50% or something like that. Does that keep you up at night? It doesn't keep me up at night. Because, you know, what's the big deal anyway? Seriously, like, yeah, it's below 50%, but it rains. What, why are people worried? Why can't we water the garden when it rains from the sky down onto our ground? I'm not worried because I'm not responsible. That's why I'm not worried. Because if I was responsible for providing water to Sydney homes and businesses, I'd know that rain is fickle and unpredictable and you can't bank on something that's fickle and unpredictable when you need water. And so that's why we have this big bathtub out the back of Warragamba that's the source for our water. Because the, sub- the supply of water needs a source. As common as water is, as much as we see it around, it needs to come from somewhere. And that's exactly the same for love. Love needs a source. Love needs to come from somewhere. Love is too essential for life to depend on the fickle and unpredictability of our feelings or even what we decide in our mind to do in acts of love. And this is what John wants to help us understand first of all. He wants us to understand that there is a source of love. It's there in verse 7, that first section. He says, Dear friends... Chapter 4, verse 7, let us love one another for love comes from God. The source, the reservoir for love, John's point, is God. He's the one that you draw from. But as important as that is, as as important as it is to have a source, God is more than just a source for love because John goes on to say that not only does love come from God, But he says more than that. He says God is love. Have a look there in verse 8. And then if you miss it in verse 8, he mentions it again in verse 16. Notice what he says there in verse 8 and 16 when he says God is love. What he doesn't say is that God is loving. Now God is loving, but that's not what John's saying here. He's saying God is love. John's claiming something higher than just God is loving. He's saying that God is love. He's not heart love. He is love. See what John's saying? Firstly, John is saying that God defines love, which means there's no love apart from him. Uh, People today try and come up for definitions of love. Love is a feeling. Love is a commitment. Love is a sexual relationship. Love is sharing. Love is an orientation. But John wants to show us that if we want to think about love, we can't think about love without thinking about God. Because God is love. He defines love. Secondly, God epitomises love. See, God is so loving. He is love such that God is incapable of not being loving. There is never a time and never will be a time when God is anything less than perfectly loving. He can't be other than loving. Thirdly, God creates love. God is love. 
Steve Jobs is Apple. Is that a fair statement? I think it is. Just give it to me. Give it to me. Steve Jobs is Apple. Why might that be a true statement? Well, it's hard to conceive of Apple as it is today without him. He was so influential. He shaped. He's so much a part of the company Apple coming into being. There would be no Apple without Steve Jobs and the same for God. There would be no love without God. Love is so connected with his being. It's, it's, it's who he is. And that love is defined and connected and created by God. So John believes that the essence of God, when you boil God down, we, John says that God is love. It's one of the most simplest ways in order to describe God. What I want to do, though, is just step back and think about that. Think about that in two ways, because what, what might it require of God to be loving? I mean, I know if you've been around church for a little while, this isn't, this isn't new to you, that here's God and here's love and they're closely connected. But what might it require of God for love to be so caught up in who he is? Because for God to be love, it requires two things. Firstly, it requires that God is personal. Um, if you've read the Bible, even for a little bit, you'll notice that God is never referred to as an it. God is never referred to as a big force out there. God is never referred to as an eternal energy. God is always referred to as a person, even in his spirit. He is personal. And for those of us who have grown up um, in this culture of the Bible, this is kind of so obvious to us that there's you know, personal pronouns used, from God, used for God. But if you've grown up in a different culture and you're not familiar with the Bible, sometimes when people read the Bible for the first time, what, what jumps out to them as most amazing is the way that the Bible speaks about God personally. See, if you don't have a personal God... You don't have a God who loves because love requires an object. For love to exist, you need someone who loves and something or someone to be loved. That's why many forms of philosophy or religion can't claim that God is love. You know, if, if you've just got a scientific view of the universe, well, the universe can't love you back, as sophisticated as that understanding might be. The universe can't love you full stop. See, God is personal. God is a person and persons love. But secondly, and significantly, God is not just personal. He is, in fact, multi-personal. To say that God is love requires more than a God who is personal. It requires a God who is multipersonal because if God is love, who did God love before he created the world? Sometimes people say this. <clears throat> you know, God was lonely and in order to cheer God up and so he could have some form of um, creation to love, 
He brought the world into being. But if God created in order to love, he would be creating out of a need. And if he's creating out of a need to love, love isn't intrinsic to his being. It's not part of who he is. It's something that he, he has to do something in order to love. But God is love. There was never a time when he was not love and when he won't be love. See, the most you could say if God wasn't three persons in loving union, the most you could say is that God loves. But that's not what John is saying here. John is saying God is love. See, a lot of people like the idea that God is love. But only Christianity makes sense of that statement because at the heart of our faith, at the very heart of our faith is love. And why? Because there are three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who through all eternity have been engaged in love with one another. These persons of the Godhead have existed in mutual and reciprocal love eternally. And so that is why we can claim as Christians that God is love because he is a trinity. He is love within himself despite the world. He does not need the world in order to make him loving. He is love sufficient in himself. Up to point D, two implications. This has two implications. Firstly, God doesn't... That, you know. Just let me stop for a moment. That might sound all a bit theoretical and cold, but I want to help us understand that these truths aren't just cold truths. These are truths that are to encourage us, to warm us. Because if God is love in himself, if he doesn't need the world in order to love, do you know what that means? It means that God doesn't love you from a place of need. You, can, you know when someone loves you from a place of need. We often feel this, don't we? We feel the obligation of their need. We all do this. We all have needs. But we all feel the needs of others, in, often in our most closest relationships. But God doesn't love us from a place of need. He's not needy. He loves from a place of utter self-sufficiency. And that is good news. Because it means that God's love for you isn't contingent. It means that he loves you even when you don't love him back. It means that he doesn't need you in order for you to love him. He is full of love as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the second implication is that our love is derivative what I mean by that is our love is always just a copy. A copy of his love. A kind of, you know, if you like, spiritual plagiary. This is how we as um, humans learn. So often we learn by watching, don't we? We see something. Um, you know, how do you learn to draw? You, you learn to draw by seeing someone else draw. And this is how we learn to love. Because... God is love, and God is the source of love. Do you know what that means? It means that you are not. 
This is good news as well. This is freeing. So often I think that we feel such an obligation of love for others, but we feel so empty to be able to do it. You know why? Because we think we're the source for love, but we're not. He is. We're a blank piece of paper, and we need to see the master and his masterpiece of love, and there we start to see what we might aspire to. We are not the source, not our emotions, as important as emotions are in, the, uh, in loving relationships, but our emotions aren't the source of love. They're part of love, but they're not the source of love. And it's not our choices, you know. You know um, I'm just going, I, I know it's really important, and I'm just going to love, really, it, you know, it's not a decision. The source of love is not our determined decisions. The source of love is God. This is, I think, why we find it so hard to love often because we're drawing fuel from our own empty tanks when there is God. He's got a tanker full of fuel for love and we keep looking inside ourselves and we so, so often fail to look at him. See, our love flows from God and then to others. Have a look there in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. You see, you can't know the God of love and not be caught up in his project and in his masterpiece. And there in verse 21, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They're like simultaneous acts almost. Loving of God is also, or is the result, the result of that is the love of brother there or sister. In verse 21, it requires knowing God to love others. It requires experiencing his love in order to pass it along. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says that love comes from faith. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See what the Apostle Paul's saying there? He's saying that love is an outcome of us giving ourselves wholly to God in faith. It's working itself out in love. And in, in that chapter, interesting, that's the, that famous bit about the fruits of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is, well, the first is love. It's interesting, that, that language of fruit, isn't it? That language of fruit is a language of outcome. Okay, if God's Spirit is at work in you, God's Spirit, then the reality of that is horizontal in our relationships. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love passage Pretty well, his version of 1 John 4 says that love is patient and kind. It's not boastful, proud, or easily angered. See, where, where does that kind of love come from? Where does that kind of patience come from? Well, it comes from, comes from our experience of patience. You know, like we, we could try just to be really patient because we know that that's a good thing and it's a good thing and I must do it, try really hard. But that's, that's placing the source in ourselves. But when we consider that God has been patient with us, 
that we have experienced his patience, that gives us the ability and the power to exercise patience to others. See, this isn't just a decision of the mind. This is not just, okay, I know that I'm Christian and the good thing to do as a Christian is to be patient, so I've got to be patient. That's not the logic of the Gospel of the New Testament because one of the realities of the Bible is that it knows that below the surface there are deep impulses of our heart all the time, all the time, just bursting out to boast for pride, for anger. And they can't simply... Those impulses are too much part of us to simply just be kind of suppressed because you've decided that's a bad thing and you don't want to do it. No, the only way to overcome boastfulness, pride, anger, is to tap into the source of love and to experience his patience, his kindness, and his love for us. See, Christianity isn't unique in its claim that God loves you. There's lots of religions out there who say, God loves you. But it's conditional, isn't it? Most often it's conditional. God loves you if... Anyone here come from a background um, of religion other than Christianity? Some of us do, I know. And, and uh, what, what, we, what we find often in other religions is that, that love is a conditional uh, thing. So God loves you if you love him back. But that's not what we see here. Because have a look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. See what I'm saying? That we, we copy this love that he has shown us. This has massive implications for us. Just in that verse 19, that we could sit on that all day. But you know, here's one implication. Often when we think about you know, a Christian's spiritual health, what we say is, you know, does that person love the Lord Jesus? And that's a very important question. But what I want to say tonight, because of verse 19, it's not the most important question. I think the most important question to ask is, does a person know that God loves them? Do they receive it? Do they rest upon it? Do they rely upon it? So I want to ask us this afternoon, do we or have we received the love of God? And if we have, do we rest our lives upon his love? Is it the truest reality that we know? A second major point is to ask the question, what is the expression of love? How is love ultimately expressed? And to figure that out, I want to have a look at verse 9. So have a look there at verse 9 because John says, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. How do we see this love? How does it show itself? Well, the ultimate manifestation of God's love is the gift of Christ. Now, if you've been around church, again, this is not revolutionary. But let me be clear about this, because sometimes there is some confusion that Jesus didn't come into the world so that God could love you. 
That's actually a distorted understanding. Jesus came into the world because he loves you. Have a look there in verse 10. This is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son. It's out of this love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's out of this love that God sends Jesus to us. God sent Jesus out of love, not in order to love us. So when John says that God sent his son into the world, he's actually saying something here. He's saying something significant. There's a bit of assumption um, going on here because he's assuming that as he sends Jesus into the world, he's sending Jesus into a particular kind of world, a world of darkness, a world of death. And when he says he sent his son into the world, he's saying he sent him into the plight and condition. The very nature of our world and of humanity is one of suffering, of sickness, of pain, of rejection. And this is what Jesus entered into. And more than that, Jesus entered into our guilt. Jesus entered into our shame. And he even entered into our death. And so when God sends his son, verse 9, he sends him into the world of death so that what? Verse 9, so that we might live. This is why God is sending his son. And verse 10 goes on to show us what God's love has cost and what it has overcome. Have a look there in verse 10 because this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love for humanity focuses on the problem of sin and our need for redemption. Because verse 10 is a remarkable verse. But the thing that makes it remarkable is what's tricky to understand about it because the most significant word or sentence there is the hardest thing to understand. It's that little phrase, atoning sacrifice. What does it mean to be an atoning sacrifice? If you've got another translation of the Bible, perhaps an ESV, it's translated as propitiation. So what's a propitiation or atoning sacrifice? They're the same thing. Well, a propitiation is a sacrifice that makes restitution. Um, somehow, it addresses the need for justice where wrong has been done. I want to give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Uh, I could give the example that was from our reading, but I want to give you one that's a little different. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter, one, in chapter 21, verse 8, there's this kind of CSI problem because there's this dead guy in a field and no one knows who's killed him. And so what we see in the book of Deuteronomy is there's a special provision, there's a special um, law appropriate for this circumstance. Now, we all know that murder is wrong and that the murderer should be punished. And we might, you know, our world, there might be a kind of whole range of um, differing opinions about what that punishment should look like. But everyone agrees that murder should be punished. But what if you can't find the guy? Well, I think if, you, you know, what do you do? Well, what would I do? Wouldn't worry about it. You can't find him. You've looked, right? If you could find him, you'd punish him. But, you know, you can't find him. 
Not for God. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 8, Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. An innocent man has died. But the whole community is held responsible. You see, what the book of Deuteronomy is saying is that when wrongdoing occurs, it can't be swept under the carpet. There can't be just that no one's responsible. There has to be restitution that's made, even on behalf of the whole people when the person responsible can't be found. See, this helps us understand the sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice of atonement needs to be made in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 21, same word actually, verse, uh, chapter 21, for when a man is killed innocently and the murderer can't be found, a sacrifice needs to be made because justice needs to be executed. And so what we have here is really the understanding of the Bible, of how it sees our world. It sees God as a God of love, but he's not just a God of love. He's also a God who is holy and just and good, and he created the world according to a certain moral logic, and, that, and there, is, there is a moral order to the universe. And so sins, misdeeds, wrongdoings need to be made right. And in order for sin to be made right, there needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a restitution. Someone or something needs to pay. And what pays for sin is a sacrifice of atonement. Because here's the reality. As Romans 1 puts it, the wrath of God is being revealed, is being revealed. This is a current reality. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. God's wrath is being revealed against you and against me. Now, we not, might not be responsible for the physical murder of someone, but we are all responsible for sin. And so just as the whole of Israel was held account when one person sinned, so we will be held account for every sin. And to be held account for our sin means to incur the wrath of God. A storm of judgment is what we have occurred. But, verse 10, but he sent his son as atoning sacrifice to our sins. What does it mean for Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice? It means that Jesus is like a Gore-Tex jacket. I've used this illustration before, so you have to forgive me. When I was a kid, I did a fair bit of sailing. And uh, there was a storm that we were caught in off Port Stephens. And it was an atrocious storm. And my uncle sent us down from the cockpit into the hull of the boat because it was pretty dangerous. And there I could see as I was looking up to him, he was in his wet weather gear, but he was in his new wet weather gear. Now, typically he had, from the 80s, that kind of PVC vinyl plastic kind of raincoat thing. And, um, you know, when you've got a pretty massive storm, there's nothing that that does to actually keep you dry. It keeps the wind off, 
But the rain gets in everywhere and, you know, down. But just a couple of weeks earlier, he got new wet weather gear. And this was the early 90s, mid-90s. So it's like new technology, that breathable Gore-Tex kind of stuff. And so as we came through the storm, came into port, he came down from the cockpit and he tore off this, this Gore-Tex wet weather jacket. And there, beneath his jacket, his T-shirt was perfectly dry. See, Jesus is like that jacket. Jesus endures our judgment so that we might be kept dry. Jesus covers you. Jesus shields you. Jesus protects you. So that when God's cleansing judgment comes down, you are not consumed, but your sin is. This is something that we need to consider. We need to consider the reality of our judgment. But even more than that, we need to consider the reality of what God has done to protect us, to save us, and to forgive us through the death of the Lord Jesus. Um, I do have a couple more points, but I'm going to save them for next week. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of what it is to know that you have sent your son to be an atoning sacrifice for us, one who bears your judgment, one who endures the reality of our sin. We pray, Father, that we might know the love that you have for us because of the cost you incurred as you gave your son as a sacrifice of atonement for us. And we pray, Father, that we might draw upon you and your love to express the love that we've experienced to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.